The roads that lead to the Collins estate are dark and deserted. A heavy rain obscures the vision of a lone driver making their way along the muddy winding path. Unfortunately, it is a journey that will end in tragedy and in terror at Collinwood. My friend, where you tread, for I warn you now, there are spoilers ahead. Welcome to Terror at Collinwood. I am your hostess, Danielle, aka Penny Dreadful, and I welcome you to the son of listener email. Yes, it's been a while since I've dipped my claws into the mailbag, but the time is nigh, and I'm going to take a look at some wonderful email messages that I've received from delightful listeners such as yourself. So thank you very much for writing in to those who wrote in, and thank you to everyone who listens to this podcast. Uh, I actually have a substantial list of thank yous here to some of the groups uh, that I post the podcast to via social media. Apologies to those who may not be happy that I'm not as active in some of the groups. I try to be, but there's only so much time in the day uh, that I'm willing to devote to social media, period. That said, I do want to thank all of these wonderful groups that I uh, share the podcast to. Uh, there are so many of them. Uh, and I'm going to just start here with the forums that I post to the Classic Horror Film Board. Uh, this is a legendary forum uh, for fans of all types of classic horror. Classic horror film is the core of, of the discussions there, but there are so many different topics that are discussed, literature and uh, horror hosts and television and uh, Dark Shadows is definitely discussed there quite often. Uh, that one is run by David Colton. It is an iconic forum. It's been around for a very long time. I've been a member there for, for quite a while now. Again, I'm not as active in the discussions there. I, I do post from time to time. I certainly post about the podcast but I, I think I just the most recent post I made uh, was in the thread about the Rob Zombie monsters. I did post a comment there, but I, I don't post that much here and there. I comment on, on threads, but I, I do check it all the time. So that is a great forum. Uh, and thank you to David Colton for allowing me to post the podcast there. I really appreciate it. Uh, there's also the Dark Shadows forums, which I've also been a member of for quite a long time. That's run by uh, Mysterious Benefactor, Midnight, and Dom. And uh, it's a great forum. The, the wealth of information that exists on that forum. I hope that that never goes away because there's so much. If you look at the old threads, there's so much amazing stuff in there. So thank you to um, Mysterious Benefactor, Midnight and Dawn for letting me post the podcast there. Uh, and then, of course, there is the amazing Collinsport Historical Society uh, run by Wallace McBride. And uh, I really appreciate the Collinsport Historical Society um, allowing me to share the podcast to their uh, Facebook page, which has a substantial number of followers. And of course, the Collinsport Historical Society is a really important part of Dark Shadows fandom. But anyway, thank you, uh, Wallace, for that. And now I have a whole big list of Facebook groups that I'm going to 
to list here. So uh, if you're interested in finding out about these groups, uh, if you're a Dark Shadows fan or, or a classic horror fan and you want to find out more about these groups, listen up, uh, take notes. Uh, you may be in all of these groups already or you might have zero interest in Facebook. You might not be on Facebook, in which case you may want to jump ahead. Uh, but I am going to read this list off because all of the these administrators or these groups have been very kind in letting me uh, post the podcast to their pages, to their groups. So I'm going to uh, read this list off. The CHS Drawing Room, uh, which is an offshoot of the Collinsport Historical Society. That is for fan discussion. It's a great uh, group on Facebook. Dark Shadows 1966 to 1971, the official Facebook fan club. Dark Shadows Appreciation Society. That is a huge group, a lot of members in there. Dark Shadows Collectors. Uh, and we just had Jeff Kenny on here uh, on the podcast in the last episode talking about uh, collectibles. And he's the co-admin of the Dark Shadows Collectors group. It's an awesome group. I've acquired some uh, collectibles myself through that group. I, I really love the Dark Shadows Collectors group. Dark Shadows, the old house. Dark Shadows Obsession group. Dark Shadows for all, exclamation point, and Dark Shadows Obsession, which is a separate group from the Dark Shadows Obsession group. The original Dark Shadows Experience, 60s, Dark Shadows Forever, Dark Shadows Always, Queer Shadows, Gay Fans of Dark Shadows, 66 to 71, comma, 91. Dark Shadows is an ensemble show, damn it. I love that title. <laughs> That is a great name for a group. Dark Shadows is an ensemble show, damn it. House of Dark Shadows. Dark Shadows, the original series. Famous Monsters of Filmland and Forrest J. Ackerman Fang Club. That is Fang Club, of course. Dracula, his kith and kin, uh, which in June had a Dark Shadows themed month with regular posts about Dark Shadows topics. So if you jump into the Dracula, his kith and kin group, in addition to discussing uh, Dracula and other vampires, you can also uh, look at the Dark Shadows topics and comment on those topics if you like. Uh, and also one of the administrators of the group, uh, Thomas Broadbent, um, is going to be, I believe, launching a Dark Shadows fan uh, get together uh, in Rhode Island, in Providence, Rhode Island, and I, if I hear anything, I'll let you know. Fans of the original Dark Shadows, a gothic classic. Dark Shadows Memories and Appreciation Group. Dark Shadows Real Friends. And in between all of the words, there is um, an underscore. So dark underscore shadows underscore real underscore friends. Welcome back to Collinwood, Shadows of the Night which is run by Dan Silvio, the legendary Dan Silvio, who used to publish the Shadows of the Night fanzine. Dan Silvio is just the grooviest. He is a great guy. Uh, he has he is a big Dark Shadows collector, too. Uh, and I used to love his fanzine, Shadows of the Night. I was a big fan of his fanzine. And I wish uh, I, I would love to see the Shadows of the Night fanzine come out of retirement and come back. But I'm glad he does have a Facebook group for Shadows of the Night. Dark Shadows in the 21st Century. The Jonathan Frid Fan Group. Classic Movie Monsters. Horror hosts and their fans. Horror host above ground. Grayson Hall. Uh, it's a Grayson Hall fan group on Facebook, which is run by RJ Jameson. Classic movie monsters. 
Monster Conservancy fans and the administrators out there are um, Stephen D. Sullivan and Derek M. Cook of Monster Kid Radio. And you heard Stephen in a previous episode, and I was on Derek's podcast um, a few months back. Hopefully Derek will be on this podcast at some point. I'd love to get Derek on here to, to geek out over Dark Shadows. Horror hosts and their fans. Horror host above ground. Monster movies and creature features. Monster Mash, the history of horror hosts. Dark Shadows in Collinwood. Original Dark Shadows fan group. Dark Shadows, the original. The women of Dark Shadows. Horror hosts. The Coffin Club, a Dark Shadows appreciation group. Dark Shadows, anything, everything. Dark Shadows and Muppets. I want to see a Muppet Barnabas. Somebody needs to make that immediately. I, actually, not only Bar- the whole Dark Shadows core cast, I would love to see Muppet versions of them. If anybody has the skill to create Muppets, Bill Diamond, if you're listening to this, which I, I, I have a sneaking suspicion Bill Diamond might be listening to this. He, he's incredible. Uh, he used to work for, for Henson, uh, and he, he has his own company now. Uh, Dark Shadows... Dark Shadows, uh, Bill Diamond puppets, please. Um, okay, moving on. Um, that's a that would be a cool piece of merchandise, right? Dark Shadows puppets. Okay, moving on. The mystery of Dark Shadows Horror Host Club. We heart classic monsters 100%. Gothic horror, vampires, werewolves, and all creatures. I think I got them all, but uh, if I'm missing any, I apologize. Uh, But thank you to the administrators of all of the groups I mentioned, the moderators of all the groups I mentioned for uh, being so kind as to let me uh, post the podcast there. So thank you. Oh, and I do uh, occasionally post uh, the podcast over at Raymond Castile's Basement of Horror. My friend Ray Castile, who is a wonderful guy and has a great uh, YouTube series, which I've mentioned here before, called uh, Raymond Castile's Basement of Horror. He also has a great Facebook group. Uh, I shared the Collectibles episode there to his uh, group recently. But yes, those are all of the groups I'm currently posting to, as far as I can recall. If I missed any, I do very much apologize. I, it was certainly not intentional, um, but uh, I wanted to give credit to those groups. And I want to give some shout outs too to some podcasts here, because if you need more Dark Shadows in your world, you should listen to these shows in addition to Terror at Collinwood. There is, of course, the delightful Between the Shadows, hosted by Kara and Kristen, and they really drill down on the storylines. Like They'll do multi-episode discussions about, say, 1795, for example. They're sisters, so they have this great rapport. It's a very pleasant show to listen to. I really enjoy uh, just going for long walks. When they put out a new episode, I go down to the bike path, which is about 15 minutes from where I live, and uh, I listen to Between the Shadows as they discuss the show, so it's really fun. There's also the YouTube-specific podcast, resident of Collinwood, which is a YouTube channel, and the show is hosted by Jewel T. Sains. He does really cool uh, character discussions, storyline discussions. He pu- He's like a machine. I mean, he puts out a new episode, multiple episodes per week sometimes, and he has great guests on there. I know Patrick McRae has been on the show several times. Uh, you heard Jewel on this show uh, with his Mitch Ryan tribute, and uh, you should definitely check it out. Uh, and uh, thank you, Jewel, for always sharing new 
Terror at Collinwood episodes. I see that you share them on Twitter and other places. So thank you for doing that. And there's also the Literary License podcast, which is not a Dark Shadows specific podcast. They talk about a lot of different shows and, and books and things like that, but they do have monthly, they have a Dark Shadows specific discussion. And they've been going through the entire series for several years now. Uh, they've had interviews with different actors from the show. Tom, who is one of the hosts on the show, has been on this show uh, for the Thayer David discussion. So definitely check out Literary License. So those are three Dark Shadows themed podcasts that you can listen to. And of course, there are many others that where they have Dark Shadows episodes, uh, you know, Monster Kid Radio. Of course, I've mentioned many times before, Derek M. Cook does Dan Sember every year in December, and he does Dan Curtis specific discussions often related to Dark Shadows. There's the Classic Horrors Club podcast where they talk about Dark Shadows at times, uh, and that's a great podcast too. So there are lots of really fun podcasts out there. If you need a Dark Shadows fix, a Classic Horror fix, there are lots of cool shows. In fact, I discovered a show recently, it's called The Borgo Pass, and they've been around for a while, and they talk about classic horror films, and they really drill down on those too. And uh, I've been enjoying that lately, the Borgo Pass podcast. So that's another cool one to check out. Another big shout out I have is to Rachel Pulliam. And I want to thank her because uh, a little while back, uh, the promo I made for Bill Mize, uh, for his Bill Watches Movies podcast, uh, uh, Rachel reached out to me and asked if she could play it on her, one of her podcasts as well, which was very kind of her. And uh, she does the Soul Twin Audios. It's her umbrella company with several different series. She has, she has a wonderful voice. Um, and these are stories created solely with a vintage soul in mind. Uh, soul Twin Talk is Rachel's behind the scenes series where she talks about her productions, but also interviews people from the audio drama community, reviews episodes of audio dramas, and then promotes people too, including trailers and demos of producers and voice artists. And I will put a link to Soul Twin Audios in the show notes. All right. So thank you for listening to Terror at Colin. No, I'm just kidding. The episode's not over. <laughs> that was that was a thank you for sticking with me through all of that, though. If you did, you're a champ because that was a that was a lot of material that I just listed off there. So let's dive into these messages. I, I also pulled a couple of YouTube comments too. I have a lot of messages here, so I'm going to see what I can make my way through uh, here, but uh, I have some great stuff. Uh, Diane Hall posted on YouTube, uh, enjoy the podcast very much. I have the Grayson Hall book that came out in 2006. In 1841 parallel time, Julia Collins was Justin Collins' sister. Flora was her sister-in-law. And uh, thank you, Diane, for that. Diane is referring to something that was uh, we talked about in the Grayson Hall celebration episode, and you are absolutely correct, Diane. And I knew that too. Uh, I, I knew that Julia Collins was Justin's sister in 1841 parallel time, but I just spaced on it. Uh, I mean, we were we were pretty far in at that point. I think we were getting close to the end of the episode, and you know, my, my synapses were not firing off correctly there. But yes, you are 100% correct, uh, and uh, thank you for the reminder. I do appreciate that. All right, moving on to some messages here. I got a message from Judith Lepatkin Bernstein. And if that middle name, Lepatkin, sounds familiar, well, uh, you 
probably seen it in the credits of Dark Shadows because uh, J.J. Lepatkin was the technical director for the show. Uh, and this is what uh, Judith writes. She says, I recently came across your Dark Shadows blog and am intrigued. My grandfather was J.J. Lepatkin, the TD for the duration of the show. Unfortunately, the only photos we had of him on set were destroyed in a house fire about a decade ago. Wondering if you know of any photos or if you have any in your archive of him at work. Here's a post I wrote on my own blog years ago, and I will post a link to Judith's blog post about her grandfather. Uh, and I wrote back to Judith, and uh, I was very, very excited uh, to hear from her, uh, certainly. But uh, unfortunately, I don't have any pictures of, uh, of her grandfather. But if anybody out there, I know a lot of the studio kids were allowed to go into the studio and take pictures. Uh, and uh, if, if any of you have pictures of J.J. Lupatkin that you want to pass along to me, I would be happy to forward them to his granddaughter, Judith. Judith uh, subsequently wrote back uh, regarding her, uh, her grandfather. She sent me a follow-up message that said her grandfather never spoke of his time on the set in any sort of glamorous way. Uh, he never even bothered to collect the Emmy statues he won over the years. Uh, to him, it was just a job, and he took immense pride in his work. He was a very special man. Uh, and then she said that um, they have some cool props from him, a dagger from the Dark Shadows set that he used as a letter opener, an overhead light from the set, and David Collins' jacket. And then she goes on to say he got his hair cut and pimples popped by the hair and makeup guy. So that must have been Vinny Lascalzo. But I, I did tell her that I would put the word out on the podcast if anybody has any stories about JJ or any photos of him. Uh, again, please drop me a line at terror at Collinwood, all one word, at gmail.com. And thank you, Judith, for writing in. My next message comes from Joe Escobar, who you heard in the 1897 episode. He sent this to me a while ago, and I think I forgot to read it in the last uh, email episode. Regarding terror number four, I think that Curtis and company were adapting Dracula. You had Barnabas as Dracula. Vicky was Mina. Burke would have been Harker. Woodard was Seward. Hoffman, Julian or Julia, would have been Van Helsing. And Maggie was Lucy. Look at episode 235. The dogs are howling. Maggie is unconscious ever after having been attacked several times. She's taken to the hospital and seems to die. I think she was going to rise as a vampire, but somewhere along the line, they decided to extend the story. I think they were still planning to kill off Barnabas, but wanted to extend the story. It looks like we were heading on a House of Dark Shadows trajectory with Maggie as the Lucy character instead of Carolyn. I think Maggie might have been staked and then Barnabas would have gone after Victoria. AKA Mina, and Burke, AKA Jonathan, being the romantic hero. I have a feeling that they were thinking they might go off the air soon and wanted to go out with a bang. I've always wondered if they got a longer term commitment and decided not to kill off Maggie. They switched gears and started stealing from the mummy. I always thought if Barnabas wanted to kidnap Maggie, he could have done it from there rather than having to snatch her from the hospital. I know when I saw that episode, I thought she was coming back as a vampire. Uh, thank you, uh, Joe, for sending that in. Um, Yes, uh, I definitely, I mean, that the intro, the Barnabas storyline, the introduction of Barnabas storyline clearly was borrowing from Dracula. I don't think it's as obvious on the surface as the Adam uh, stuff with regard to Frankenstein or the Longworth and Jaeger with Jekyll and Hyde, but clearly there was a lot of Dracula in there, especially, I think at the time when I was talking about that with Jeff Thompson. I think I said there were echoes of Dracula in that in that storyline, but I think it's more than echoes. As you point out, they were using their existing characters as analogs for the characters in Dracula. And I, at the time, I was thinking more of the um, 
when Jonathan Harker goes to the castle at the beginning of the novel and meets Dracula. But yes, I definitely see uh, parallels there and beyond the obvious you know tropes that that arose from Dracula, like the howling dogs, etc. You know the unsettled animals when when the vampire is near and uh, other things of that nature. Um, and clearly, I mean, uh, look at Barnabas, look at Fred with the cape and the, and just the look the, of this more cinematic looking Dracula versus the, the novel. Um, yes, I, I agree with you. I don't know if Maggie was going to die and rise as a vampire, um, but I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, if they weren't going to go off the air anyway, I, I you might be right. Maybe that was Curtis's original. I mean, Dan Curtis loved Catherine Lee Scott, and she has never mentioned that she was going to be killed off and rise again as a vampire. That has never come up as far as I know. But if she is the analog for the Lucy character and Vicky is the Mina character, I could see I could see Curtis doing that. As with House of Dark Shadows, where Carolyn was the in the Lucy role and Maggie wasn't more in the Mina role. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, good good call there. And thank you for writing in. Nina Ogle writes in. Hi, Nina. Nina says, I met you at Seaview Terrace in October. Yes, we did. And it was a pleasure meeting you. Just wanted to say how much I enjoy your podcasts. It was so odd. I listened to one of yours for the very first time when I was at Seaview, totally unaware you were going to visit the house the very next day. I was one of the people you interviewed that night. I listened to them while walking. They're always so interesting. It makes exercise much more palatable. I'm an original fan of the show, so I'm very happy that you and others are doing so much to keep the show alive and going all these years later. I hope we can continue to visit Collinwood in the future. I love that place so much. It's heartbreaking that it can't be in the hands of those of us who love it. So, uh, Nina, thank you for writing in. And uh, it was great meeting you uh, at Seaview uh, last October. Let's keep our fingers crossed for uh, for a good future for Collinwood. And uh, ideally, be available to fans, whoever ends up buying that house down the road. I hope they uh, will keep a keep a spot for the, for the fans to, to continue visiting. And uh, I'm thrilled that the podcast keeps you company while you exercise. Uh, I, I need to get back to exercising. I quit my gym membership when COVID started. Uh, and uh, that's been bad news for me. I really, I got, I have to get back in shape. Um, but yes, I'm excited to to hear that the podcast keeps you company while you exercise. Uh, my next message comes from Daniel Myers. Hi, Penny. You know, I was watching an episode of Dark Shadows on Tubi recently, and it dawned on me just how lucky we are to have nearly every episode of Dark Shadows to enjoy. Some television shows did not fare so well. For example, as you probably know, Doctor Who was recorded on videotapes just like Dark Shadows, and as those tapes were very expensive at the time, they were ultimately erased and used for other programs. As a result, there are many Doctor Who storylines that are lost, and we can only speculate what they might have looked like. Can you imagine having to do the same if we had lost Dark Shadows episodes? Speculating what the Count Patofi, Parallel Time, or perhaps even the 1795 storylines were like with few or no surviving episodes. This got me interested in a possible subject for a future Terror at Collinwood episode. What is the full story of the Dark Shadows tapes being saved, preserved, restored, and even archived for the future? Well, thank you very much for writing in, Daniel. Yeah, as as Dark Shadows fans, we're certainly very lucky because uh, uh, I've heard, you know, I've heard all about the Doctor Who, the lost Doctor Who episodes, and I know they recovered some, they found some, and then they... There were other ones where they had the audio only and they animated them. Uh, fortunately for Dark Shadows, there's only that one uh, episode, 1,219. At least we have the audio for that, thankfully, uh, which is which is great. Thanks to uh, Josette uh, Carnahan to, for 
you know, to, for having them and sharing that, but it would be great. I still yearn to find that one lost episode that I just have this feeling that that episode exists somewhere. Somebody has that episode. Maybe they don't even know they have it. You know, I, I just feel like it must be somewhere. It must exist somewhere. And it would be amazing to turn that up. Uh, even though, I mean, it's not the most uh, exciting episode. It's an 1841 parallel time episode where Bramwell marries Daphne in parallel time. But it's, I mean, it's a one of the Dark Shadows episodes, right? But at least, again, we have the audio. It would be cool to have an animated version of that, like they did with the Doctor Who episodes. Hey, MPI, how about you get on that? Uh, speaking of MPI, yeah, um, that is a great topic. I would love to talk to Jim Pearson about that, and I'd love to have Jim Pearson on the show, period, at some point. He ran the Dark Shadows festivals. He then went to work for Dan Curtis Productions, and he spearheaded all of that. So it would certainly be great to chat with him about that. My next message comes from Bradley Friedman. Bradley says, I wanted to thank you for the amazing celebration of all things Grayson Hall that you had with RJ and Steve. She will always be my favorite on Dark Shadows, those striking cheekbones and the high theatrical style. I loved all her characters. Magda probably injected more humor into the series than any other actor in any storyline, and it was welcome, while Hoffman was every bit as good a Mrs. Danvers as the great Judith Anderson. But it was Dr. Julia Hoffman who captured my heart. Her eyes narrowed to slits when she was hurling a warning or a curse on someone, and then they widened when she was afraid, and her voice made that huge gulp as she delivered, oh, Barnabas, for the 200th time. I have a memory, and I pray to God it's true, of a scene set in modern-day Collinwood, once uh, Dr. Hoffman moved in, she enters holding a big vase of posies and she says, enter Julia Hoffman bearing flowers. I don't know if that truly was the line and the writers were giving us a brief taste of drawing room sophistication or whether Grayson accidentally treated her stage directions as a line or did it on purpose. Whatever, it's one of my favorite moments right up there with Joan Bennett saying, things have certainly changed here in Hollywood, uh, Collinwood. <laughs> and yes, you're right. It's episode 346 uh, where uh, Julia says that. Uh, I double-checked the episode number. I did not know it by heart. That is an admission of not knowing every minutia of Dark Shadows. Um the next major storyline you've got coming up is one of my favorites, Parallel Time. I think the introduction of this storyline was one of the series' best, the search for Megan, leading Barnabas to discover a brand new phenomenon. I loved the Rebecca storyline and the Jekyll and Hyde subplot. If it kind of went off the rails in the middle, well... That's what was happening. But my favorite aspect of this part of the show was that it was the big murder mystery. The death of Bill Malloy had four suspects. We really didn't think Sam or Burke could have done it, which left Roger, who I believe was supposed to be the killer, and Matthew. I'd like to think that the saving of Louis Edmonds and the sacrifice of Matthew Morgan is what made the whole Stokes family possible. And the Malloy mystery took forever, but amounted to the sheriff making up his mind that it wasn't murder and then the endless bit with Burke's pen. But the idea of Angelique coming back to figure out which of the attendees at the Sands had murdered her was sublime, and Roger finally got to be the killer. As a lifelong reader and now blogger of classic murder mysteries, the murders in daytime serials were always my favorite stories. I hope when you find your guest for that episode, you guys can really delve into the whodunit. It was a high point in the series for me. Well, thank you very much, Bradley, for writing in with your thoughts. Yeah, they, they did the murder mystery with Bill Malloy, and then they, we didn't have another one of those, I don't believe, until uh, 1970 Parallel Time. So very good points, and thank you for raising them in this delightful email. Thank you very much. Next up, I have a message from Carol Cox. 
Carol says, hi, Penny. Been itching to write to you to tell you how much I love your podcast and I finally stopped procrastinating. What finally pushed me over the edge? but not over Widow's Hill, something you said in the latest episode with Jeff Kenny. Your idea regarding viewpoints of original fans versus newer fans is a great idea. I'm an original fan. Didn't have to run home, but I had to be home. Watched the show from day one. My mom and I always loved gothic novels and such. Dark Shadows was perfect. My mom was a fan. She took a friend and I to see Jonathan Frid in person during his publicity tour. I think she enjoyed it as much as we did. She also acquiesced to my begging to send for the Josettes music box advertised at the end of the show. I was lucky to have such a supportive mom. Anyway, even though I'm an original fan, the thing that keeps the show alive is new blood, new fans discovering it, enjoying it, and loving it. I am admittedly not a fan of the Burton movie. I can't even watch it. But if that's what brought you, the in general you, not you, you, oh, you know what I mean, lol, to love the original uh, Dark Shadows, I'm all for it. And honestly, all of us original fans are getting older. Who knows how long we'll be around? Oh gosh, hopefully a very, very long time. Uh, we, we can share a love for the show and our memories, but it's the newer fans who will carry on the legacy we leave. No matter how you get there, the important thing is that you got there, if that makes any sense. And yes, it does. I feel this way about many of the things I grew up with. I'm old enough to have been an original fan of many old shows, along with a huge Beatles fan who lived through Beatlemania and loved every minute of it. I have to say, Beatlemania is one thing you have to have lived through to really know what it was like. It was amazing, crazy, and there will never be anything like it again. No matter what the fandom, musical group, or whatever, it lives via its legacy and those who carry it on. I was also a monster kid. I loved the Universal movies, bought Famous Monsters of Filmland, and had a mad crush on Lon Jr. as the Wolfman. Recently, I got to see the Wolfman on the big screen, and it was such a thrill. As a Don Briscoe fan for over 50 years, I want to thank Stephen Shutt for explaining Don's grin during an episode. Grayson pulling a face. I always wondered what caused that slow grin. Now I know. I loved hearing that little insight. Love your podcast and look forward to each one. Dark Shadows Lives. Please take care of Carol. Carol, thank you so much for sending that marvelous message. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to do that, sharing your memories and commenting on the different generations of fans discovering uh, Dark Shadows. Uh, and I, I wish I had lived through Beatlemania. I would have loved to have experienced I love the Beatles. It's really great that you got to experience that, that you, you were a Beatles fan at the height of Beatlemania. That is just really cool. All right, up next is a message from Dennis Willett. Danielle, sure glad your last name isn't Roger. Ha <laughs> ha. I see what you did there. Great podcast about Gothic. Really enjoyed it. Looking forward to your getting back to storylines. 1897 would have to be a three or four parter. I was saddened to learn about the passing of Mitchell Ryan. He was a strong male lead for the series. It makes me think that his departure changed the whole trajectory of the series. It seems he and Barnabas were headed into direct conflict. Viewers didn't like Anthony George as his replacement and George didn't like Dark Shadows, so he didn't stay long. What if Mitch had stayed? In short term, 1795 would have been different. Jeremiah would have had a longer arc. Maybe he would have been Vicky's defender, which would have negated Peter Bradford and Jeff Clark. And would Burke continue to pursue Barnabas's secret? Would Burke have been involved in the Adam storyline, or would he have another storyline? Maybe he and Vicky would have bought the house. I would bet Dan was planning to do the Turn of the Screw storyline there. Another effect could have been Quentin. He was brought in to relieve pressure from Jonathan Frid and give the show a second lead. With Burke as a second lead, Quentin might have been unnecessary. You can go on. What might Mitch play in 1897 or Parallel Time? 
That is fascinating. Uh, well, thank you very much for writing in, uh, Dennis. I agree with you. Uh, if Mitch Ryan had stayed with the show, I strongly suspect we would not have had Peter Bradford. That would have been really fascinating because he looked just like Burke. I mean, history would have been changed. I think Jeremiah, yeah, I think Jeremiah and Vicky probably would have fallen in love and maybe they would have revealed that Burke is the reincarnation of, of Jeremiah and they would have done this whole star-crossed lovers thing, the same thing they did with Peter Bradford and Jeff Clark and Vicky, but with Jeremiah, Burke and Vicky. Uh, I, I think that would have been really fascinating, and I suspect you might be right. Maybe that maybe they would have done something like that. Uh, I mean, it certainly fits, uh, you know, the tone of Dark Shadows. It's it, the fabric of Dark Shadows is made up of such things. So I think potentially that that might have been the case if Mitch Ryan had stayed with the show. Who knows? I, it, it's interesting to think about. I certainly we would have certainly had a, a gruffer. I think Jeremiah more in line with how Jeremiah was described prior to the trip to 1795. I think he would have been, you know, had more of an edge to him. Uh, the Jeremiah we see uh, with Anthony George. I liked Anthony George as Jeremiah. He was a kind person. Anyway, really, uh, really fascinating stuff there. Thank you. Next message comes from John Burnside. And John says, just finished listening to episode 24. And I have to say, it's probably my favorite so far. Thank you so very much for sharing this with us. I hope you do more such episodes. And that was the gothic episode. Dark Shadows is wicked gothic. Thank you very much, John. By the way, I have a couple of my usual unimportant comments regarding things mentioned. The concept of a multiverse in comics was originated by DC back in 1961 with the story, The Flash of Two Worlds in Flash number 123. There was a Broadway musical back in 1964 called Bajour. It was about a gypsy con game in New York City and had a fairly famous cast, including Nancy Dussault, Cheetah Rivera, Herschel Bernardi, and several more folks that he lists here. Also, it was really fun to be reminded of all the merchandise. I had a bunch of it, but I had to let go of it when I moved from Kansas City to 1979. I didn't throw it out. I sold it to a comics and collectibles store. Oddly, though, I kept the Barnabas teeth and still have them. John, thank you for writing in. Uh, I hope you were wearing your Barnabas fangs while you wrote that message. But yeah, um, I, I did forget about the Jay Garrick and Barry Allen uh, Flash of Two Worlds comic. And then, of course, if we go outside of comics and television and film, we have literature that predates that, like uh, Sidewise in Time, for example. Uh, I didn't know about the Bajor musical. That's, that's fantastic. All right, our next message comes from Evan Butterfield. Just wanted to thank you for a wonderful Dark Shadows podcast. I love your interviews and your thoughts, like the most recent one on gothicness. My husband and I are on our second watch of Dark Shadows, still in 1897, which is a DS arc I really love. I would ask that you check out my gallery at evanbutterfieldphotography.com, which is not Dark Shadows related. I think you might enjoy some of the images. My stuff started out as dark, creepy steampunk including a healthy dollop of male objectification in my Gentleman of Steampunk series, and has since evolved into just generally weird, dark, and strange, with some sparkles thrown in to the rusty, creepy mix. In any case, thank you for the great podcast, and keep it up. It's always a highlight of my day when a new one drops. Thank you very much, Evan, and I will put a link to uh, your uh, gallery in the show notes for those who may be interested in checking it out. The next message comes from Christian. I just happened to get up into episodes 1,000 plus, and the behind-the-scenes photos 
photo you have of Christopher Pennock and Joan Bennett together is definitely from episode 1073 as Elizabeth agrees to meet him at 3 p.m. and you can see the clock time in both the photo and episode. Everything matches and I just wanted to pass it along in case you wanted to add this to the page. I don't know if I added that to the blog. I need to double check that. Episode 1073 is the episode and Christian wrote back again and says, unfortunately for you, what do you mean unfortunately, Christian? This is great information. Thank you for sending it in. I got to episode 1184 tonight. I know you mentioned the episode number in the post and think many of the action photos you posted are from this episode, starting with the Henry Kaplan photo. The next four photos up through James Storm with sunglasses are all from 1184. The two Kathy Cody shots are here as well. Her in trees is the rehearsal from when her character meets Jeremy Grimes in the woods. And the first picture looks to have James Storm on the right with Kate Jackson's arms wrapped around him from behind. But maybe he'll verify this was Kate when you have him on the podcast. Wow, that be great. I haven't reached out to Jim Storm yet, but of course, I certainly have him in mind for a future episode. I would love to talk to James Storm and Valerie as well. It would be great to have them on. Oddly enough, Donna Wandry had left the show after 1177 and would have been showing up here two weeks in filming days after her last episode, which seems a little strange. I have no idea what Leela looked like in 1971 in case this is her, but maybe Donna just stopped by. Thanks again for posting these as they made it more fun to watch. Sorry to get so nerdy with details. Christian, Christian, please do not be sorry. That that, that I love that kind of stuff. Um, but yes, that is Donna Wandry. Um, I'm not sure why she was there. She might have just been visiting uh, the set. Uh, she might have been trying to learn stuff behind the scene, behind the camera and how that works. She, or she might have just been visiting. Who knows? Uh, she was done with the show at that point. She was not in that episode, but that was her, uh, one of the studio kids, uh, Jay Nass, who's, you know, pretty, pretty well known. He's been in the featurettes, you know, on the Dark Shadows DVDs. Uh, Jay Nass was there that same day and took pictures of Donna Wandry that day in that outfit uh, in different parts of the studio. So that was definitely her. Uh, but yes, thank you very much for sending those episode numbers in. And of course, uh, Christian is referring to the blog post uh, from last year that I posted with the great pictures that were sent to me by Rob Saccone of all of the behind the scenes pictures that were taken by his uncle, who was a cameraman on Dark Shadows, and he was kind enough to share those. So if you have not seen those, yet, head to terror at collinwood.com, click on the blog section and just scroll on down because those pictures are must-see photos, uh, behind-the-scenes set photos. And while you're there, also check out the What If Dark Shadows had a cartoon in the 70s blog post that features some amazing artwork by my good friend Eric Marshall, uh, who just channeled the spirit of Hanna-Barbera <laughs> into his uh, model sheets. So check those out. Maybe there might be more coming down the road. I don't know. I don't know if Eric has time. He's very busy. He's a very, very busy guy. Anyway, moving on, the next message comes from Jill Cummings. Hi, Penny. Thanks for resurrecting me. I am one of those kids who ran home from school to watch Dark Shadows in 1967. Yay! I was a little late finding out, so I didn't see the very beginnings. I was in eighth grade, age 13. Ooh, if we could only have had VCRs. After finding your podcast, I found Dark Shadows on Amazon Prime. I love listening to you and your guests discuss this amazing story and the extremely talented actors who did such a tremendous job bringing it all to life and death. I'm at episode 450 right now. I started around 14 weeks ago. I know I'll dread getting near the end every now and then. I find that I'm recalling parts I'm watching that I had forgotten, like recently when Vicky was on trial for witchcraft and convicted and many more. I must have been a true fan because I had gotten a pet turtle, bowl, and food from the store. When I found 
a place in my room, I decided on a name for this cute turtle, Barnabas. I love that. (laughs) Thanks again for your work and research on your podcast. I've told my girlfriend who also would run home just like me and tune in all about your podcast. Also from Jill, you've asked your audience on occasions their favorite scenes or characters in different eras portrayed throughout Dark Shadows. Recently, you were discussing 1795 with Dominique Lamsey's. I couldn't help but think of the fabulous scene between Naomi and Joshua. Naomi is contemplating suicide. She's learned the truth about Barnabas. The compassion and the deep felt love shown by Joshua in the scene towards his wife made me rewind and watch a few times. And when he asks Naomi if she would like a glass of sherry, so many times he had mocked her for drinking and was so condescending. He totally nailed his true love for her in this scene. They are remarkable actors. Thank you for all you do so the rest of us can listen and immerse ourselves back into the world of Dark Shadows. Jill, that is very sweet of you. Thank you very much for sharing that. And I agree with you. The actors on the show were absolutely incredible. Those scenes with Joan Bennett and uh, Louis Edmonds in 1795, uh, Naomi and Joshua, wonderful, wonderful stuff. Our next message comes from David McBee. Hi, I learned of your podcast from a tweet last week, and I'm listening to the third episode now. My history with Dark Shadows begins with my discovering the show almost at its beginning. When I was eight years old, I feel like I saw it from the beginning. There's a new book about rushing home to watch Dark Shadows. I haven't read that yet, but thanks to you, I'm feeling inspired to write up my own story about the show and what it tapped in me. And he provided a link to that, and I will post the link to David's article in the show notes. It's it's a really cool article. I agree the show is more about terror and suspense and gothic horror. It was never about gore. I love the old Universal and Hammer horror movies. I've never liked the slasher films, Halloween, Elm Street, etc. Only a couple of recent movies hold the same kind of suspense that Dark Shadows had. Those are The Sixth Sense, The Others, and Mark of the Vampire. Thank you so much for writing in, David. Uh, yeah, a lot of the recent horror movie stuff I, I'm not a big fan of. Uh, it's just, uh, here and there, every once in a while, one comes out that I like. But one I would recommend is uh, The Witch, uh, Robert Eggers' movie that came out. I don't remember. It was a few years ago, but it was not that long ago. But it's uh, I, I really liked that one. That one gave me the feel of more of a, a classic horror movie. There's a, It's cr- very creepy. Uh, and it's not really, it's not about gore or anything like that. And it's not about cheap thrills. It's just an eerie film uh, using like testimony from from witch trials and stuff and weaving that material into this fictional narrative. It was was really quite good, I thought. I also like a lot of Guillermo del Toro's stuff. I always call Guillermo del Toro the chosen one because I feel uh, of all current filmmakers or well-known filmmakers, he is a huge fan of uh, gothic literature and films and classic horror films. And I think he gets it. Uh, like something like Crimson Peak, although it has some moments where I'm just like, uh, it went a bit too far, I think, but it, it, it has a nice, it's his gothic romance movie, you know, but it's supernatural. So it's, it's really, you know, it's a gothic horror film as well. Um, but Guillermo del Toro, he, in my opinion, he should have been the one to direct Dark Shadows in 2012. Not that I he was ever on the table as far as I know, but I think Guillermo del Toro would have done a phenomenal job with a Dark Shadows movie. I think he understands what makes a gothic horror movie tick. And But Dark Shadows is very special. It's not just gothic horror. It's gothic romance as well, but it's also a dark fantasy too. You know, there are so many elements in the tapestry of Dark Shadows. And 
and just the characters, the, uh, the characters in the interpersonal relationship. It's t- I think it's diffi- it would be difficult to convey the essence of Dark Shadows in just a film, uh, you know, because watching a serialized five-year story where we get to follow along and get to know the characters uh, and care about the characters, it's, it's tough to make that happen in a, in a two-hour movie. Uh, but that said, I think Guillermo del Toro would have been able to pull it off successfully. Moving on, our next message comes from Claude Debord. Good evening. I want to first thank you for these wonderful DS podcasts. I travel to work, six state sales, and listen to these as I drive. My parents graduated high school in 1964 and watched the show during its first run. I first started watching it on V32 in Central Florida during the mid to late 80s, then rented the discs from Netflix and would have them mailed to the house about 20 years ago. My Dark Shadows fandom has really kicked up a few notches in the past decade. I bought the coffin set. I believe our set is number 47 out of 2,500, so we got a Jonathan Frid autograph. Any idea how many DS clubs are still going in the United States in 2022? I know of Orlando, Florida, and that's it. Wish there was a way to unite the handful of small clubs that are left. Claude, thank you so much for writing in. I do not know how many clubs are left. Uh, there used to be a, a, quite a lot of them back in the 80s and 90s, but these days I, I don't know. Uh, I'm sure there are more. Uh, if somebody knows of Dark Shadows clubs out there, uh, yeah, start a Facebook group for your local Dark Shadows club. I know with COVID and stuff, I, people are certainly more reluctant to get together. Things are, you know, improving. I think we're seeing more of that, but last couple of years, there haven't been many clubs, uh, in-person clubs anyway. But yes, thank you for writing in. Next message comes from Jason Hensington. Hi, Jason. I know Jason. He says, love the podcast. I see that often there is mention of Big Finish audios and of Doctor Who. Sounds like a great episode for the podcast could be about the similarities between the two shows. Just a suggestion. Well, thank you very much, Jason. Uh, I do know, I went to college with Jason. Uh, we did improv together back in the day. I know Jason is a huge Doctor Who fan. He is big, big Doctor Who fan and Green Lantern fan, as I recall. Uh, and uh, that is a great topic for an episode, Jason. Um, I'm probably not, uh, you know, familiar enough with uh, the intricacies of, of Doctor Who storylines to really have a, an in-depth conversation about that. Um, I have, a, I'm familiar with Doctor Who. I watched as a kid. I watched a lot of the Tom Baker episodes. I remember on PBS, and then uh, some of the Sylvester McCoy stuff. I did remember, like, I've watched some of the different stories. Line, the talons of Wang Chang. I remember that one with Tom Baker and um, the Happiness Patrol with Sylvester McCoy as the doctor. And then I watched some of the new stuff here and there. But one of these days, I have to just really take the time to dive in fully into Doctor Who. But I think that is a great suggestion. And uh, maybe we could have you and uh, our mutual friend, Rebecca Paiva, my dear friend, and uh, her, uh, my other dear friend, Eric Parks, Rebecca's boyfriend. They're also huge Doctor Who fans, so maybe we could do a Dark Shadows Doctor Who discussion. That would be fun. Up next, I have a message from Dan Saba. I was just watching Dark Shadows and encountered one of the strangest time paradoxes in it. 1797, when Barnabas claims that the Collins family history book should still be in the courthouse because Eve has yet to go to the past and alter the timeline in 1968. And now my brain hurts. I was wondering if you've ever read any good in-canon explanations for all of the time 
paradoxes and dark shadows. Obviously, the show is still wonderful, even if the only coherent explanation is out-of-canon writing issues, but it would be nice to find a good way to think about it without having to resort to that. Dan, uh, while not confirmed in any canon, my feeling is that the time paradoxes are due to the extreme tampering with the timeline on the Collins estate, uh, starting with uh, 1840, uh, Quentin the First's metaphysical experiment with the staircase, all the way through to Victoria and the seance, and Barnabas and Julia using the I Ching. Uh, I believe the stairway in particular caused irrevocable damage to the time stream in Collinsport, resulting in a fluidity to time that seems to just keep changing, becoming more and more unstable to the point where a hole has been punched into parallel universes in one part of the house. My friend Eric also posits the theory that the very ground upon which Collinwood was built, including the surrounding woods and the old house, are all enchanted, cursed land from a time that predates any known history. Uh, so I think it could very well be a combination of those two things. Uh, I sent Dan that that I'm reading my email to back to Dan actually, and he uh, wrote back and he said that that he's making that part of his headcanon. Now, you know, if we're looking at uh, the secondary world, uh, as I discussed with Dr. Andrew Higgins, I think that is as good a way as any to describe it. I love in-canon explanations. Out-of-canon explanations to me are always interesting. And I love those too, uh, from a historical perspective and in terms of like information about the show, like real life information about the show, the primary world answer to the question, but I always love in-canon explanations. So to me, the inconsistencies with the dates and times, etc. in Dark Shadows all have to do with all of the things I mentioned earlier, the time travel going on during the show, back and forth in time, doorways into parallel universes forming, and then working in Eric's idea about um, this sort of this enchanted land that uh, Collinwood is built on that predates all human knowledge. You know, there's there's something cursed about that land. The combination of those things going on uh, certainly must have affected the time stream. Parallel universes bleeding in and out. I think Mark Rainey, when he was on the show talking about the Leviathans, he talked a little bit about this. So, um, I mean, you can always find a secondary world explanation. That's why I, I kind of say the real life explanation is kind of a cop out because it's like, yeah, okay, yes, the writers forgot or or the writers just decided to retcon it. But I think if you talk to any fan base, they're going to want an in-canon explanation always. I mean, in any, not only with Dark Shadows, and it just makes it more fun. It's just more fun to play in that world. But anyway, thank you very much for writing in. So Chris Dingsdale writes in next, sorry for unsolicited email. What are you talking about? I am British, so I have to ask, he says. <laughs> Just a brief note of thanks, really, for the podcast, which is terrific and actually, for me anyway, enriches the whole Dark Shadows experience, or at least my own. I am, I guess, a casual fan from the UK, so it's not part of my cultural DNA like so many Americans in my age group. I am 60 in September. But it's been on my radar for a while, and I keep revisiting the program periodically. First heard of it via magazines and thought, well, that sounds cool, but it never aired here on normal TV. On satellite in the mid-90s, I think, but I was too busy working to bring up a family. Over the years, I have bought and resold some individual DVD sets, but to gain the whole series seemed so daunting. But it kept reappearing periodically in my mind. As a kid growing up in the late 60s, early 70s, I devoured comic books. We used to get American comic books, which I still enjoy. Made Aurora monster kits. James Bama box art can never be bettered. Read Monster Mags. We had House of Hammer magazine over here and watched horror movie double bills. Good old BBC 2 on a Saturday evening. First the Universal Canon, then Hammer with my mom who loved a horror movie and would tell me, Chris, it's not real. 
Don't worry. How great was my mom, huh? Chris, your mom sounded really great, and I'm so glad you had that experience with her. I have followed the Big Finish material pretty much from the start, buying bundles from time to time. Perhaps a limited knowledge of the source material makes them better to the uninitiated. What an odd union, though. An American classic continued by a bunch of parochial Brits, with some transatlantic help along the way, of course. However, there have been some individual gems. How great are the Tony and Cassandra mysteries, the 1970s TV series that should have been made to play against Kolchak? We got the two movies here in the UK, but this series actually didn't air until late 1980s, and then in the time slot you needed a VHS recorder for. Jerry Lacey and Lara Parker et al. are a joy to listen to. The Hermes Press material is nice too. As you say, a DS parallel universe. But it's the 60s. It's fine. Remember Mirror Mirror on Star Trek? I have been lucky enough to travel in my recent years, a year off in 2010, to travel around the world, and I have just returned to the UK after six years working in the Caribbean to assume my grandfather duties, and it never ceased to amaze me how vivid the memory of DS is to those Americans I have met and worked with who watched it at the time. I have some relatives in San Diego, and they can relate individual moments and events with fantastic clarity, presumably because it scared the pants off of them at the time. And he goes on to say, uh, so with time on my hands now, I am slowly going through the series in the evenings. It's on YouTube at my leisure. Hopefully at some point I can pick up the coffin DVD set. Again, not easy to get here. Heartfelt thanks for all you do. Thank you very much for writing in, Chris. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you for sharing your thoughts and your memories. Uh, yeah, those Tony and Cassandra mysteries do feel like a, a 70s TV show. I could completely imagine that. What a, what a great call that is. Uh, really uh, good stuff here. Uh, thank you very much, Chris, for writing in. So the next message is a YouTube comment. Uh, it's a public YouTube comment on one of the uh, episodes, and it comes from Sci-Fi Janet. Sci-Fi Janet says, Sorry, Penny, but this is the episode where you finally lost me. You couldn't have done a more effective job of running me off if you had gathered a bunch of villagers with torches to help. I switched off about 19 minutes in. The reason? I really, really love Tim Burton's Dark Shadows movie. Yes, I know there are a very vocal group of DS fans who despise the film and think it has ruined their lives, and their carping has driven me away from many a Facebook group or site. So as soon as I saw the topic of conversation for this episode of your podcast, my heart sank as I knew what was coming. You seem to find time in every episode to tell us how much you dislike Burton's film. And hey, you're entitled to your opinion, but I feel like I've been battered over the head with it for long enough. It's a pity because I could listen to you talk about the original TV series all day long, but the incessant negativity about something I love has become too much for me. The terror at Collinwood has come to an end. Well, uh, I am very sorry to hear that uh, you have decided to move on, so you're probably not hearing what I'm saying right now, but if you love the Tim Burton Dark Shadows, I have never once on this podcast ever said that anybody who likes the Tim Burton Dark Shadows is not a real fan of Dark Shadows. I have never mocked or derided those who like the Tim Burton Dark Shadows. Uh, and in fact, my criticism of the 2012 film, I feel, has always been quite even-handed. She's referring to ranking the remakes and reboots episode I did with Ricardo Rebello. And Rick and I actually did not rank that film last. I think in that episode, we ranked the 2004 
reboot last WB pilot. Uh, thinking back over it now, honestly, as I think about Angelique putting her underwear on Barnabas's face and Julia going down on Barnabas, Barnabas brushing his fangs in the mirror with no reflection, and Barnabas just openly telling everyone he's a vampire, uh, I think I'm going to knock Burton's back down again to the bottom. Uh, I do like some things about the Tim Burton film, uh, as I mentioned in that episode, and particularly, I think, after my conversation with Stuart Manning, um, he pointed out you know, that Burton was, in his mind, as an artist, I think he's honoring more the visual aspect of Dark Shadows. And in that respect, uh, I did enjoy that. And it is a beautiful film to look at, no doubt about it. From a visual standpoint, it certainly, I think, is truer to what uh, Dark Shadows should be than uh, the WB pilot, uh, to some extent. But I think the tone of the film is problematic. And I'm not saying you can't like it. Of course you can like, you're welcome to like whatever you want. If you love the movie, that's great. Uh, and maybe someday I'll have a fan of the film on to speak in its favor. In fact, actually, I had just had Jeff Kenny on recently, and he's a fan of that film. And he's a huge Dark Shadows fan. He has a tattoo of Collinwood on his arm, for Pete's sake. I mean, but ultimately, the podcast's focus is the classic show, because that's the Dark Shadows I truly love. That and the films. I do love the original films, too. Uh, and I enjoyed the 91 series quite a lot, too. Um, but maybe I'll put a, a moratorium on discussing the Burton and Depp film for a while. I've been trying to be better about that, because uh, in its defense, it has brought some new fans to the original show. And there are things I like about it. The visuals I like, Danny Elfman's music, the first, you know, 10 minutes or so of the film before Barnabas gets released, I liked. Uh, it had a great cast. Um, I, I had a lot of problems with the film, but I don't think my criticism has ever been cruel. I think you can disagree with somebody and be civil about it. So it's too bad. Uh, I hope you'll come back and, and see us again. Just bear in mind that my issues with the Tim Burton film are shared by, uh, by a lot of fans. And there's a reason for that. So I would ask that just as uh, you would like to see more understanding on my part, as I've tried to convey in terms of pointing out the things I did like about the film, that um, maybe you try to see it also from the perspective of those who had issues with it. It made me sad that somebody felt that they had to leave the podcast because of my uh, critiquing that film. Um, but anyway, wow, I've gone on quite a bit on this one. But uh, anyway, thank you for your comment. And I'm sorry that you felt the need to stop listening. The next message comes from Patty Karapinar. Hi, Penny. I'm currently reading a 2021 published book of short gothic tales by Adam Bolivar called The Ettenfell of Beacon Hill. Its protagonist is the Ettenfell detective John Drake. In the very first paragraph of the first page of the first story where the Drake character is introduced, it reads, satisfied with his appearance, he added a silk hat, a velvet opera cape, and a walking stick topped with an ogre's head. If people thought him a vampire, he may as well play the part. I know that other vampires have similar attire, but I like to think this is a nod to Barnabas Collins in Dark Shadows. She goes on to say, I love your podcast. Please keep going and don't be shy about featuring Barnabas discussions frequently. On that subject, I'm quite curious how people react to the Roxanne character. I'd love to know your thoughts. Well, thank you very much, Patty, for writing in. Um, I love all of the Dark Shadows characters. I have to say there isn't a Dark Shadows character that I say, oh God, I, do I have to sit through this? Never. Uh, Roxanne, not one of my top favorite characters. Um, but with Roxanne, 
we have different versions of Roxanne. We have the parallel time Roxanne in 1970, which I feel there was no chemistry really between that Roxanne and Barnabas. In fact, it was kind of infuriating that Barnabas was so fixated on Roxanne, uh, quite honestly. I mean, she was the sleeping beauty kind of a thing, you know, and I, I don't know. It was, there wasn't a whole lot going on in terms of that character in parallel time. I did, however, enjoy the vampire Roxanne uh, during the summer 1970 haunting and uh, her earlier incarnation in 1840, uh, where we meet her before she becomes a vampire and then after she becomes a vampire. And I liked uh, Roxanne in 1840 the best. Although talk about a time conundrum, uh, because that one is a mind bender since she's a vampire in 1970 before Barnabas ever went back in time to 1840. Therefore, how did she become a vampire in 1840 prior to Barnabas having been there? I think the prevailing theory in the fan base is that Gerard slash Judah Zachary turned her into a vampire in 1840. He had some scheme and it seemed it was implied that she was somehow in cahoots with the ghost of Gerard slash Judah in summer 1970. So there must have been a backstory there that the 1840 original run of events, she must have become a vampire there as well. Or is there some weird time travel conundrum where Barnabas turned her into a vampire, uh, yet he had not yet met her. Did she know who Barnabas was? There's, there's a, there are a lot of interesting questions there, but I, I think the, the one that makes the most sense is that she was transformed into a vampire in another way, and that she was always destined to become a vampire. Another mind bender is how is the 1840 Roxanne, who's been around for 150 years, how does she have a counterpart in 1970 parallel time? Again, I always put that off to that parallel time Roxanne is a descendant of an 1840 parallel time Roxanne or a descendant of a member of the parallel time Drew family. It's the only thing that makes any sense. But a lot of times that's the case with those counterparts in parallel time. Sometimes they don't line up. But anyway, I thought that version of Roxanne, whether she had chemistry with Barnabas is another matter uh, because you always do hear people talk about, you know, Barnabas and Josette, or Barnabas and Angelique, or Barnabas and Julia, you know, you hear, uh, or Barnabas and Victoria, you know, but rarely have I heard anybody speak in glowing terms about Barnabas and Roxanne. It wasn't, it wasn't working for me, although I love the interplay during summer 1970 with Barnabas and Roxanne. Although, how does he not know she's a vampire? Like, you know, wouldn't he sense that she's not human, you know? Uh, there were things I liked about the character, even the parallel time version. You know, there were things I liked about her. But uh, I mean, I liked the, the concept of you know her being linked to parallel time Angelique and uh, and all of that, the, the life force thing with her and stuff. I thought that was kind of cool. But gosh, I, I mean, I wanted her to get angry at Stokes, at Timothy Stokes and at Claude North. She needed to have more agency uh, as a character. I felt she was just... I don't know. Uh, it's like, uh, she's, but, and also she's, you know, she's, Donna Wandry, I think was 22 years old and Jonathan Frid was in his mid forties already at that point. So, um, I mean, my late husband was 10 years older than, than I am. And, uh, my friend Meredith's husband is 20 years older than she is. And I don't want to certainly don't want to be ageist in that regard, but there was a little bit of a, 
a disconnect for me uh, with, with regard to that. Of course, then again, you know, Catherine Lee Scott was significantly younger than Jonathan Frid uh, in terms of Barnabas and Josette too, even though the character of Barnabas is supposed to be a bit younger than Jonathan Frid himself. But I mean, Donna Wandry looked so young uh, compared to Jonathan Frid. There was a bit of a disconnect for me there as well. Anyway, moving on, I got a message here from Sean Garrett. Hey, Penny, just wanted to let you know that I enjoyed the most recent podcast on the Leviathan storyline, which I've never seen. In fact, listening to the podcast has inspired me to finally long plans start re-watching the entirety of the show from the beginning. My previous knowledge was just memories from my late sister and the introduction of Barnabas slash Adam storyline on New Jersey Network when they brought it back. In truth, I've always been a bit wary because of the huge stretch of time and the fact that I'm not really a fan of serial TV, but I recently decided that I did need to just grapple with it and I do love live TV from that period with the final push coming from listening to the podcast. So at this point, I'm only about 22 episodes in, but I'm enjoying it immensely. I love the black and white, works well with the gothic atmosphere, the filmed inserts of Collinsport in various locales, and the way Victoria and Carolyn kind of fill these dark and light roles, brooding slash concerned and vivacious slash detached to bad boys, and also how the show is so much trying to set up potential storylines, everything is fraught with mystery and unspoken intrigue. David is the strange child who Carolyn seems to feel is worth being wary of, but really he's just sensitive and ignored. I think my favorite character so far is Roger, who I always liked. My favorite in general has always been Willie Loomis, but he hasn't appeared yet. I really like Louis Edmonds' speaking voice. It's like he figured out a way to incorporate the lockjaw approach of the New England wealthy. I think Jim Backus as Mr. Howell, but just a trace of it so as to not be cartoonish. Looking forward to finding out just what Burke Devlin's overall plan is. Uh, I, I don't know how far you've made it in at this point, uh, Sean, but congratulations. And that's cool that you're going back to the beginning. I love how it unfolds and the supernatural stuff is just hinted at at the beginning. It's like, we don't know if they're just speaking in metaphor or if there's, you know, it seems like they're speaking in metaphor, but as we, of course, we find out gradually that it starts to unfold. And I think it's interesting to get to know those characters before Barnabas, because once the, once the monster show takes over the dark shadows, you know, the, the human characters become victims. Basically, they're kind of on the back burner a lot. And uh, here you, they're front and center. So it's cool to see. Uh, and also how they evolve. You know, you see, as you point out, how, how Roger was and how David was, how Carolyn was before things changed, before their lives changed and changed as characters over the course of the series. So I know Sean, you wrote for uh, Rumorg magazine. All right. Up next, I have a message from Nick Caputo. Actually, I have two messages from Nick Caputo. Nick says, just wanted to check in and say hi. I've been enjoying your podcasts, particularly the last one discussing Grayson Hall. I've had mixed feelings about her performances, particularly when she was over the top, but her quirky character was perfect for the show and she became a strong female character and an important element of the DS mystique. I've been re-watching the show on and off over the past few years and watched the Leviathan episodes, which has good and bad elements in parallel time, but stopped when I approached 1840 parallel time. I only watched that segment once years ago. Well, I may have seen most all of it when it was originally on, I just don't recall, and it didn't register as being that good. I finally decided to give it another try and look at it objectively. To my surprise, I enjoyed a great deal of it. Frid seemed invigorated by playing a new role, and the storyline was decent. One of the biggest problems, in my opinion, was the performance of Keith Prentice as Morgan. He was often too loud and obnoxious to have any degree of charm. What did Catherine see in him? And I suspect another DS actor would have been more acceptable, switching of roles 
roles with Chris Pennock might have helped, once one gets over the fact that there is no Barnabas in this storyline, although Bramwell is the son of Barnabas and Josette, his mom, which I also thought was a nice touch, it moves pretty decently, even if it is more melodrama than supernatural. I would have loved to see more Thayer David and Louis Edmonds, though. Watching that last episode, I wish they would have kept the original ending instead of the tacked-on voiceover by Thayer David. DS is a show that never should have a happy ending. There is always the threat of danger around the corner, which is what makes it interesting. I hope you devote an episode of Terror at Collinwood to the final chapter of DS. I'm glad I revisited it, and I'm sure yours and others' takes will be worth listening to. Well, thank you very much, Nick. I absolutely plan to devote an episode to 1841 Parallel Time, as I have with all of the other major uh, storylines so far. Uh, I'm still making my way through those, but yes, uh, for sure, 1841 Parallel Time will be discussed. Um, I agree with you. Uh, I think my first experience with 1841 Parallel Time before I had ever watched it was reading the synopsis in the My Scrapbook Memories of Dark Shadows and raising an eyebrow and saying, what? And then reading the concordance, I got a little more of an in-depth understanding of it and was still kind of like, eh. And then I watched it uh, when it came out on MPI via, uh, on VHS because I was getting all the VHSs and I watched it and I, I enjoyed it. I didn't dislike it. It was at the time my least favorite storyline because it was so disconnected from uh, the rest of Dark Shadows. And, and in some ways, I still feel that way. Like it's sort of an, an island unto itself. There is nothing that tethers 1841 parallel time to the characters we had been following for all those years prior to that. So uh, it's in the, a parallel band of time with none of the characters that we know. So I still have some issues with it, but I did enjoy it a lot more. And when I rewatched it, I really liked it. I I had been quite a number of years since I had seen it and I watched it again. And I said, this is really actually quite compelling. I liked the lottery uh, aspect of it. Um, the Wuthering Heights aspect was cool. I, I thought it was, I liked 1841 Parallel Time a lot more than I remember liking it. So um, yeah, I, I think uh, it's worth having another look at it for people who maybe don't care for it. A lot of the show, a lot of the episodes, I think after 1897, a lot of fans have mixed feelings about all of those storylines with the with the notable exception of 1995 which i think most people unanimously that i've seen tend to like 1995 uh but all of the other stuff after 1897 people gripe about uh even stuff before then though like adam the adam and eve storyline i've heard you know a lot of a lot of griping about that too but uh i love every storyline in dark shadows some more than others uh but 1841 parallel time there are problems with it but i think it's a an interesting idea and i like the idea of a what if kind of thing if barnabas had never been a vampire uh, more from Nick here. Uh, he says, enjoy your latest episode about the rare DS items your guest has. As a kid growing up and watching the original series when it was on, I can assure you DS stuff was everywhere. Being a comics fan and a DS fan, I recall the absolute thrill when I walked into one of our local candy stores and discovered a Dark Shadows comic book. This was the only store in my Brooklyn neighborhood that I know of that sold Gold Key Comics. My older brother, John, was also an avid follower of DS and purchased the comic as we did when every issue came out. I also had a few of the Marilyn Ross books. Of course, I collected the DS gum cards, which even with my limited budget was possible at five cents a pack. I think you'll enjoy this very clear memory. I was in the neighborhood with my good friend Joe and bought a few packs of cards at a nearby store. Or we, I, or we, Joe also watched DS, bought the last cards in the box, 
This was the Green Series, and I asked the man if I could have the box. He said, sure, and I took it home. Unfortunately, it was lost over the years, as were many of the cards. Back then, I could not have fathomed that the box would become so valuable, but it makes absolute sense since most candy store owners just threw the box out when the cards were sold. You mentioned the stigma attached among some fans of DS with those who are not of that first generation. How absurd. I was one of the original fans, probably introduced sometime after Frid arrived. My cousin Marianne, who was aware that my brother John loved horror-oriented material, told him about DS and a vampire on the show. It was a memorable experience getting home from school every day and seeing the show when it first aired, but I'm thrilled that later generations discovered and appreciate the show. I wasn't around when Jack Benny was on the radio, but I enjoyed it when I heard it as my mom did when she listened to it as a kid, or Laurel and Hardy, or the Marx Brothers, or James Cagney movies, or Max Fleischer pop by cartoons. It makes absolutely no sense. I'm happy that younger people are enjoying the show. Otherwise, it will be little more than a distant memory of interest to few. Well, thank you so much for writing in with your thoughts, Nick, and sharing your memories. Uh, and I agree with you, uh, particularly, you know, when you pointed out things like Laurel and Hardy and the Fleischer Popeye cartoon. I love that stuff. Going to mention him again, Uncle Valdemar, when I was a kid. I mean, that's we watched that stuff too, alongside Universal horror films and Hammer horror films and Dark Shadows. We were watching the classic comedies as well. Uh, we wa- we would watch Marx Brothers, uh, W.C. Fields, Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello, Three Stooges, I, all of that. Uh, and cartoon. I loved cartoons growing up. I still love all those classic cartoons, the Fleischer Popeye cartoons for sure. Um, and Woody Woodpecker, Looney Tunes, Tom and Jerry, um, the Disney shorts. Uh, I, lo- I used to love those as well. Um, all of that. I mean, those were all created before I was born, and I loved them all. Uh, So, I mean, there are very hardcore fans of all of that stuff today. I'm not going to profess that I'm like an expert in those things. Uh, I don't know every detail of of W.C. Fields' life. Uh, You know, I don't know everything about Mae West, but I love those films, you know. Uh, It's great stuff. But a fan who watched those films in the 30s is not necessarily like... These are the only real fans of the Marx Brothers are the fans. But wait, are the fans who saw them in the movies not as big fans as those who watched the Marx Brothers perform in vaudeville? That was probably fandom back then. (laughs) That was how it worked. Anyway, yeah. So, uh, yeah, good, good uh, message there. Um, I I am running out of steam here. So while I would love to keep on going and reading more messages to you guys, uh, I'm going to have to uh, call it a day. Uh, The sun is setting over Collinwood, and we know what happens when the sun sets. Things get a little uh, scary, a little hairy. Uh, Please subscribe to the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And for as long as they lived, the dark shadows never truly vanished. For there will always be terror at Collinwood. Terror at Collinwood is a Penny Dreadful production.